If you guys have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And again, if you have got an empty seat next to you during this time, if you want to squeeze together, we are, are somehow getting bigger or our room is getting smaller. And though I, I do think Alice in Wonderland is good, I think it is fiction. Uh, and so if you've got some space next to you, there are some seats. Like There's a couple seats here in the front. Uh, there's an empty seat right here in the front as well. So if you're one of those that's like, I'm going to read and then pray. So if you want to like sneak during that time, you're more than welcome to grab a seat at that time. Uh, that would be great. Go to Romans 5 if you're not there already. And I'm just excited to look at God's Word. You know, we've, we've talked before about God's Word shows us what life is like. God's Word is reality. We also know that the Bible talks about God's Word as light. And we live in a dark and discouraging world. And I know that we as the leaders in this ministry always want to be of a, of a help and an encouragement for whatever's happening in your life. And I also know that what every high school student most needs is God's Word, because in His Word, there is light and hope and joy and satisfaction. I think our passage this morning will lead us to those same inevitabilities. So let's take a look this morning at Romans chapter 5. We're only going to look at 10 verses today. We'll look at verses 12 to 21. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the man, one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through, the right, through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray before we dive into this passage. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that this morning we get to hear from your word. Lord, we just sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Father, I pray in this text this morning, you would help us to turn our eyes on your son, that we might learn of the hope 
and forgiveness we have in him, that we might worship him and adore him and obey him in all that we do. Father, in all that's happening in our lives, all the distractions, all the discouragements, Lord, help us to see and marvel at Christ this morning. We ask for your help according to your spirit, for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. A week and a half ago, Tuesday morning, November 2nd, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department received a phone call regarding an automobile accident. There had been a collision. A Chevy Corvette was driving and crashed into a RAV4, leaving the RAV4 on fire. The Corvette, before crashing, was driving 156 miles per hour. And it dropped down to 127 or 8 when the airbags were finally engaged. The young woman in the RAV4 who's crashed into died. The car had caught on fire and she passed away. The driver and the passenger with the driver were totally fine. Uh, The driver is a man by the name of Henry Ruggs. He was a receiver in the NFL until he was released shortly after heading to jail. And it seems that the evidence has already shown that he was driving under the influence. His blood alcohol level was double that of the legal level. He is now facing two to 20 years of prison. It's a sad story. It's a devastating story. It's sad for the young lady who passed away. It's a quick reminder that sin is never nearly or doesn't make itself seem as dangerous as it actually is and that your sin always affects other people. But when I read the story, I thought it was, what was most interesting is that the sentencing, two to 20 years, that seems like a really big gap, right? Like, how do you determine if it's a two-year DUI murder or a 20-year DUI murder? And so I, not being one who knows much about constitutional law, asked my friend George Crawford, who's an elder at the church and has served as a judge for many years, and I just said, how are they going to determine that sentence? two to 20 years. And he said, there'll be a lot of different factors. He's a celebrity. So that might be bad. That could be good. He'll probably get some high profile lawyer. There might be some other things that happen. But one of the issues that's determined in something like this is priors. That is, has, has he done something like this before? Because if this is the first time that's happened and it's an accident, uh, then the, the, the sentencing might not be as severe if he's a multiple-time offender. Uh, how many of you know what um, double jeopardy is? Now, I'm not talking about the game when you hit the thing, rah, rah, double jeopardy. I mean, like, double jeopardy. Who, someone raised their hand over here, I thought. Student, what is it? Double jeopardy. Hit me. Being tried for the same time, or being tried for the same crime twice. Good, right? So if you are acquitted, if you go to trial, you're on the stand, and they rule you as innocent, well, the same lawyers and same person can't come back and sue you for the same thing two weeks later. You've already been declared innocent. It's done, right? That's, that's, uh, you cannot be uh, tried for the same crime again. But here's what we do have in this situation, that if you've committed this crime before and you commit it a second time as a multiple offender, multiple-time offender, the punishment is often worse. Breaking the law in the past affects the consequences when breaking the law in the future. Now you're wondering, why, Josh, are you bringing this up? There's a lot of things happening here. Why do you bring this up sort of, you know, worse consequences of breaking the law again? Well, consider where we're at in Romans so far. I want you to think about it. 
Think about Romans so far. So chapters one, two, and three was all about the wrath of God. The wrath of God rightfully falling on sinners. That because of our personal rejection of God and our attempt to overthrow his rule in our life, we are under his punishment that we should face forever. And we read that you can be forgiven, you can be made righteous as if you've never sinned by faith in Jesus. That you can have all your sins removed. And last time we met, two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 5, we talked about that we can have the joy of certainty. So because I'm righteous and all my sins are forgiven in Jesus when I put my trust in him, the end of verse 2 says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice knowing we're going to go to heaven. We rejoice, verse 3, in our trials. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings prove our faith. And in verse 11, it says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And so you go from under condemnation to forgiven to joyfully confident. That's what Paul is thinking. You should have confidence knowing I will see God, not because I'm good, but because Jesus has paid for my sin. That's good news, but there's reason to pause. There's questions that are asked. There's perhaps a reason to delay the celebrating. Perhaps a reason why you are uncertain if your sins have really been forgiven. Here's why. Because you think, yes, my sin is awful, horrible. That's step number one. You cannot get saved unless you recognize your sin is is wickedness against God. You think, yes, my sin is terrible. And yes, I am forgiven in Christ. But I still sin. So at one point I came to Jesus broken over my sin, confessing my sin, asking him to forgive me. And I trust that he has forgiven me. And as the weeks and months have gone on, I still see sin in my life. So how can I know that I'm forgiven? I mean, how can I know that, that now that I'm a multiple-time offender and I've done this again, how do I know that my punishment now isn't just going to exist? It might be worse. How do I know that I'm not going to face condemnation? Because sin is very much still a reality in my life. I mean, even last night, I knew I was going to church this morning. And there's all sorts of wicked thoughts and words and actions that can come, on, come uh, out of us in a 12-hour span. So, so how do I deal with this? How can I be certain? How can I have the hope of the glory of God when I don't act like I have that hope? How can I know that I'll be with God if I still act like a devil? How can I know that I'm going to heaven if I act like a child of hell? How can I know that my sin is forgiven if I still very much see sin in my life? You know, some of you are here this morning and you're newer to church and you've thought before, man, these Christians, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They they talk one way and they act a different way. And in one sense, you are right. Uh, we do not live up to the gospel that we share, that we proclaim. And yet we feel awful about it. In fact, real Christians always feel bad about their sin. And sometimes, some of you this morning might be wondering, am I actually a real Christian? Am I actually really forgiven? Am I actually still forgiven? 
because of the sin in my life. That's the issue Paul tackles for us in Romans 5, 12 to 21. Paul wants to give us hope in light of sin, in light of sin that still exists in our lives. He's going to do that here in in chapter 5. He's going to tackle that issue more in chapter 6. We're going to talk the next few weeks. If the gospel is real, how should that make me think about sin that still exists in my life? And this passage gives great comfort and great hope. It gives hope for discouraged sinners who feel like sin has enslaved you and dominated your life. There is hope for forgiveness. And there's hope for struggling saints as well. For those who who feel like, how can I say, turn your eyes upon Jesus when I know what my eyes have been looking upon, when I know what my heart has been adoring, when I know where my allegiances have seemed to have lied, how do I do this? Paul wants to help us see the hope of the gospel in light of our own still existing sin. And for this hope, Paul doesn't just say, there, there, everything's better. He wants us to go deeper. He wants us to think more deeply about sin. He's saying that in order to have this hope, your view of sin needs to get bigger and your view of forgiveness needs to increase as well. And in doing this, what did Paul do in this passage? What he starts doing in verses 12 to 21, it's he, he gets us out of modern times. He gets us out of just thinking about today And he helps us think about the greater narrative of the universe. He helps us think about history. How would you explain human history to somebody? If you had to map out all of history, you get your timeline out, how would you do that? And and even more than that, how would you explain, let's say a visitor from another planet came, how would you explain humanity? How would you classify people? People try to answer both those questions. And, you know, history, you answer those in your history classes, right? Uh, you, you learn all about Mesopotamia at some point and Egypt, and then you learn about castles and Middle Ages. And then, you know, every, every guy's grade goes up when the history of World War I and World War II comes around. You're like, dude, I like this stuff. I'm in on this stuff, right? That, that's many ways people have tried to define history. The same way there's many ways that people have tried to describe humanity, you look at humanity in regards to civilizations, different ethnicities, different races, different cultures that have existed. But what does Paul do is he simplifies it for us. He gives us answers to both of those, the explanation of human history and the explanation of humanity, just by giving us two categories. Uh, how would you explain human history? Adam explains human history in two men. Two men who have shaped history. Two men, both who have been representatives of those who've come after them. Two men who are at different times referred to as the son of God. He describes history in two men, Adam and Jesus Christ. We see Adam's name mentioned in verse 14. We see Adam as the one man in verse 12. All of human history can explain in two people. Adam and Christ. And if you want to explain humanity, if you want to categorize humanity, you could look at races, you could look at nationalities. What Paul says is there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Jesus Christ. And everything else is just subcategories of those two dominant categories. And understanding these two men is critical for you to understanding forgiveness. Listen, 
Today is much more than just a theology lesson uh, on uh, Adam and federal headship, if you want to use fancy theological words. This is more than that. Understanding Adam and understanding Jesus is the only right way you can understand that you're forgiven. It is the only way that you can know that the sins you commit this week do not need to be paid off next Sunday. It's the only way you could do that. It's the only way you can have hope. For those of you that just, you're here at church because you know something's off with your life, you can't figure out what, understanding these two men is foundational for knowing, yes, you could be forgiven and accepted and loved by God. So let's look at these two. Number one, if you're a note taker, let's first look at the first man, Adam. Let's look at the first man, Adam. Now, what is Adam known for? He's not in much of your Bible, right? What is Adam known for? Well, he's known, of course, for being the first man. He gets to name all the animals, and some of you have cha- uh, learned children's songs about that. Uh, he is also known, if we were to look uh, in Genesis, as the first son of God. In fact, take your Bible. I just want to show this. Go to Genesis chapter 5. We have a little bit of time for this. Jump back to Genesis chapter 5 real quick, because it's important for us to see this. This is similar to what Mike Riccardi taught a few weeks ago, but it's a helpful reminder. Genesis 5, starting in verse 1, says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now notice, he makes them in his likeness. Verse 3 it says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So again, likeness and image has the idea of sonship. Adam had a son named Seth in his image, in his likeness. Well, Adam himself was created in his image, in his likeness. He is viewed as a son of God. And in fact, that's not just an Old Testament idea. Luke chapter 3 will do the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. We'll call Adam the son of God. And so Adam is the first man. Adam is the son of, a son of God. But obviously, what's, what's Adam most known for? Adam's known for his sin. Adam's known for his sin in Genesis chapter 3. That is when the serpent goes to deceive Eve, the the language makes clear that Adam was present. Adam, who was supposed to obey God and image God, fell. And he didn't just break a violation of, you know, eating food too early. In eating that food, he rejected God's reign. In fact, he sought to be like God. Now, how did Adam sin affect the world. Romans 5 tells us that Adam's sin didn't just affect him. By the way, sin never just affects you. So for those of you who do think that, that think, well, my sin is just you know, affecting me, doesn't bother anyone else, it absolutely ruins the lives of others around you. But for Adam, it was far more severe. Let's take a look at the way Adam's sin influenced history. First is this, because of Adam, there is sin for all. Sin for all. Take a look at verse 12. We're back in Romans chapter 5. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. That is, where did the sin come from? It comes 
through Adam. Again, verse 19. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That is, because of Adam, we see sin spread to all people. All people become sinful. Adam's actions have passed on to all of us. And because of Adam, we're all born sinners. You're familiar with this, right? You're familiar with this idea. Uh, You all love your parents. I was going to say, how many of you love your parents? I know you'd raise your hand, so we're not going to do that. You better love your parents, right? But sometimes, and don't raise your hand on this, sometimes your parents have some some quirks, some personality traits that you're... uh, Slightly embarrassed by, right? You go, I can't believe they do that. Some of you, maybe your mom is a little more panicky uh, than you think she ought to be. Or maybe your dad tells jokes that are lamer uh, than they ought to be. And yet what's funny is you love your parents. You see these quirks like, I don't, that's so weird that they do that. And as you get older, you start finding out you do the exact same things. You tell a joke one day and you go, oh my goodness, that was my dad coming through me. How did that happen? And I really actually thought it was funny. How did I, it just genetically passed on, right? Why am I so worried about this? I'm acting so much, oh, I'm acting like my mother in this situation, right? These things happen. You love your parents. You go, that's strange. You find out you do the exact same thing. Well, to a much greater extent, why does everybody sin well, we're just like our first parents. We, we haven't broken the chain at all. That sin has continued to pass on to every single person. And so if you've ever wondered, like, okay, well, why can nobody obey this book perfectly? Why are God's commands, which are really good and are helpful for human flourishing, why does no one obey them perfectly? It's because we are born with a disease. We are born bent towards sin. It is our natural inclination. Take a look on the screen here, 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 is a funny, it's an interesting verse because, because here you have Solomon praying at the dedication of the temple. It's a big moment. And in the midst of that, he just goes, and if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Why is that? Because we're bent towards sin. Listen to David here. This is David in Psalm 51. Next verse here. Psalm 51. David in his prayer of confession says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now this is not David incriminate. This isn't him blaming his mom. This isn't him saying, you know, well, she was sinful, and then I was born out of that sin. That's not what's happening here. This is saying, I came out of the womb wicked. I came out of the womb with a bent, with a desire to sin, with a nature to love sin. That's what we've already read in Romans chapter 3. You can go back to Romans chapter 3 there. And this is Paul. He's just quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, where he says that, uh, verse 10, that as it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That the whole human race loves sin and desires sin and sprints towards sin because it's their nature. It's their nature to rebel against God. Again, remember uh, the the language of Romans 3. Uh, Verse 11 says, no one seeks for God. 
Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's not just that they love breaking rules. They love breaking parking rules or anything like that. It's that they love rebelling against God. It's our nature to recoil at God's desire to reign in our life. Where does that come from? It comes from Adam. Back to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 again. Sin came into the world through one man. Look, you can ask all the questions like, well, how did Adam sin? And there's all sorts of answers that we just don't know to that. But we do know this, why we sin. We sin because Adam sinned. How else did Adam affect the world? Second is death for all. So sin for all and death for all. We should not be surprised by that. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The payment for sinning is death. That's Romans 6.23. And this is a physical death, that is we all die, and that is a spiritual death, that we all do no good things. Again, verse 12, therefore, just as sin came to the world through one man, and death through sin, and death spread to all men. It's an interesting question here that comes up. Verse 13. Uh, Verse 13 says, For indeed, uh, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. You're like, what is going on here? Paul, in verse 13 and 14, takes a little aside. He's talking about those who say, well, how can people sin if they don't know the law? Right? How can people sin when they don't know the law? And Paul says, well, there was sin before the law. Remember, the law doesn't come until Moses in Exodus chapter 20. He says, people... People did sin before then. It wasn't counted as sin in the sense that it was categorized as sin. But remember, even when Abraham goes to Pharaoh and says, Sarah is my sister, and then Pharaoh wants to marry Sarah, and he finds out that Sarah is Abraham's wife, he goes, even I know I can't do that, right? There's a moral code. Romans 2 said the law is written on everybody's heart. All right, so the question is, yeah, but, but how do we know that there was sin when there was no law yet? Ah, Paul tells us, verse 14, it's because death reigned from Adam to Moses. And because death and sin go hand in hand, we know sin was in the world then because death was in the world then. It's really interesting if you read Genesis chapter 5 and you read about what happens after the fall, what happens after Cain and Abel's sin, the same phrase gets repeated. Thus all the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8 of that chapter, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh, and he died. Kenan, and he died. Death, 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 again and again and again. Death, what's the word there in, in verse 14? Death reigned. Again, verse 15a For if many died through the one man's trespass. Verse 17, for because of one man's trespass, death reigned. Isn't that so true? Like we have so much money in our society and we have so many thinkers and there's so much good that we could do and so many problems we can solve. But when you say death reigned, You don't just mean that death is present. What does it mean for someone to reign? It means that they're king. It means that they have dominion. 
It's that no one can thwart their purposes. No one can get in their way. Uh, They could move forward unstopped. And that's exactly what we still see with death. With all the wisdom and all the entertainment and all the fancy things we have in our culture. Death remains unchallenged and reigning over the world. Delivering the final goodbyes to people that we were not ready to say goodbye to yet. And you think, why? Why does death reign like this? Well, why does death just show up unannounced and unopposed and unstopped? Well, because of sin. Sin that exists in the world. The wages of sin is death. It's not just that death exists because you've sinned enough and you die. But because of sin, our culture is tainted by death. And all eventually in their own time die because of the sin of Adam. Here's the third one. Condemnation for all. First man, Adam, the one man, brings condemnation for all. Verse 16, and the free gift, that's the that comes with Jesus, that's what's being compared here, is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's a guilty sentence. Again, verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. What this is saying is that we are condemned in Adam. It's a legal term. It has the idea of guilty. There's a sentence that has been cast. Now, we need to think about what he's saying here. He's not just saying, because of Adam, you sin, and because of sin, you're guilty. Right? That's not what's going on here. What he's saying is, because of Adam, you're guilty. That's a big difference there, right? There's a difference between saying, because of Adam, you sin, and because you sin, you're guilty. And then skipping step two and just saying, because of Adam, you're guilty. Why is that? Why does he say you're condemned? Because Adam, as the first man, was to act as a sort of representative for humanity. As the first son of God, what he did would affect and influence the rest of the human race. And Adam was meant to represent all of us well, to walk in holiness so he might represent us as one who was obedient to the Lord. It's not an uncommon theme in the Bible. The idea of innocence by representation or guilt by representation. So Joshua chapter 6, right? Joshua chapter 6, even if you don't know the book of Joshua chapter 6, you may have heard the story of the fall of Jericho, right? Nation of Israel marching around for six days. On the seventh day, marching around seven times. They're blowing trumpets, right? And everything seems really good in Joshua chapter 6, except you find out in Joshua chapter 7 that instead of destroying the whole city like they were supposed to, a man named Achan takes some treasure that they weren't supposed to take. Okay, so this one guy, one dude, takes a little bit of cash. Who doesn't want a little bit of cash, right? Joshua chapter 7, what does God say? He says, Israel has sinned. What? No, 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 you mean Achan has sinned. No, representatively, corporately, because one has sinned, 
all have sinned. This is a, this is a theme in the Bible. The same thing happens in a positive sense with the high priest in the sacrificial system. The high priest was supposed to be holy when he went into the presence of God. Why? Because he was representing Israel in the presence of God. Right? So there was representation. Sometimes, there, there are, even in our society today, there are those who, because of their innocence, represent others who are deemed innocent, or because of their guilt, uh, others are deemed guilty as well. Let me give you an illustration. Many of you know Matt Palladian. He's sitting in the back. Matt used to work for Disney. Oh, Disneyland, the mouse house, right? And the, the home of all the ways that we entertain ourselves. We have nothing to do on Disney+. Plus. Uh, the only thing is, so Matt worked for Disney, worked for HR there, and Disney has a little bit of a progressive liberal agenda that's been slowly unfolding over the last uh, while. And the funniest thing is that when Disney would do something bad, Matt, we talked about it, would get like text or... Uh, uh, not nasty, threatening text, but people would talk to Matt as if he had done what the company had decided to do. Does that make sense? Even though Matt didn't do those things, and he didn't put those things in the movies, he's barely even any of the credits, although you're in one of them, I think. We'll just talk about later. Um, Swiss Family Robinson. No, that's an old movie. It's not the right one. Anyway, right? Because of what they did, there was a guilt by association. All right? Do you understand that picture there? That's the concept. Well, that's exactly what's happened in Adam. Adam, as the representative of all of us, failed. And therefore, in Adam, we are all guilty. That's the picture here. That's what Adam has brought into the world. In Adam, as a representative for the human race, his failure has made all of us guilty. Not just sinful so that we're guilty. He actually legally makes us guilty. Some of you don't like that language. You don't like being blamed for what others have done. But trust me, you'll see that it's for the good when we get there in a second. But let's again think about this. This is the state of every single person. Every single person is sinful. They are sinners. Sin has corrupted them because of Adam. Because of Adam, everyone is going to die. They are dead spiritually and they decay and will die physically. And because of Adam, we are guilty. Now that's weighty. That's big. If you're new, that's how history begins in Adam. But what I want you to notice in this passage is that's not Paul's primary focus. He wants us to look at Adam, but only for the sake of comparison of something that's similar and better. Because look at verse 14, the second half of it says, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of, of the one who was to come. The word type there is the idea of impression or outline. It could be the word pattern. That is, look, he says, I want you to look at Adam because what Adam did and who Adam was is similar to someone else, someone better, someone who I want you to look at more than I want you to look at Adam, which takes us to our second point. Let's look at the second man now, Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to look at Adam only in so much as it helps us then look at Christ. So who is Christ? We know he is a second kind of Adam. Luke chapter 3 gives us a genealogy about that. It's amazing. In Luke chapter 3, it tells us who Christ is. And then what is Christ's first action? Well, after, being, uh, after seeing he's the son of God, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. 
by a serpent, right? That's exactly what's happening. He's just like Adam, only different. And like the first Adam, he shapes and impacts those he represents. What's so good about the gospel is this. The the message of the Bible is, is that it's not about a formula. It's not just about sayings and creeds. What I want you to see, what Paul helps us to see, is you can know that you're forgiven because of a person. Because of the person, Jesus Christ. Again, too often, especially if we're raised in church, we think of Christianity as a system we've memorized, a philosophy that we hold to, and we really love the ideals. We even love to say the word gospel. But friends, there is a real person with flesh and blood who exists in heaven right now. And your only hope for forgiveness is not the math you've done in your head, the spiritual, you know, spiritual math you've worked out. It's only because of Jesus Christ, a real person, who lived and died and was raised and is existing in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where our hope is, a person. And we'll see that because of what Jesus brings. What does Jesus bring? What do we find in this passage? First, in the place of condemnation, Jesus brings justification. He brings justification. He brings righteousness. He brings forgiveness for sins. Verse 16 says, The free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Again, verse 18 says, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And in verse 20, sorry, verse 19, the second half, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That word there again means faultless, not just your sin wiped away, but as if you've always obeyed. Here's the question you need to ask yourself. Why wasn't Jesus just born two weeks before the crucifixion, right? What if Jesus just showed up 33-year-old Jesus, hey, in two weeks, I'm going to die for sin. And then two weeks later, he died for sin. Why could he have just done that? Wouldn't that have wiped our sin away? It's interesting. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus goes to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, why, why am I baptizing you? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, I've come to fulfill all righteousness. That is, Jesus didn't just come to die the death you should have died. He came and lived the life you were supposed to live as a sort of representative. Yesterday, there was a handful of us high school ministry who played golf. And uh, I am not good at golf. It is, it, I, I can hit it. I'm just not always sure which way it's going to go. And yesterday, we played a format called Scramble. That is, four of us play all together, but what you do is instead of taking your second shot wherever you hit it, you all figure out who hit the best shot, and you all go get to play it where they are. So someone does a good shot, it helps out your whole team. And thankfully for me, I had Larry Brown on my team who can golf. Larry is good, people. You, if you don't know how to golf, just, just ask Larry for life advice, 
and if, if you can go golfing with them. Anyway, the result was is this, is if Larry hit a good shot, what ended up happening? Well, it was as if I hit a good shot and got to put my ball where his was. It's scramble format. It's how bad people like me can feel good about how they're playing. Now, here's the point. When I see Christ's death, we learned about this morning, I see that my sin is paid for. The debt I owe is gone. And I need that. I need my sin. You need your sin to be wiped away. But you need more than that. You need more than just no sin. You need righteousness. You need perfect obedience. And when you look at Christ's life, when you read the Gospels, when you see the way that he's gracious and kind with those who are weak, when you see that there's no sin or defect in him, that at his trial there's no sin that they could, no charge they could bring against him, when you see no, no foul words, when you see no lust, uh, when you see none of, no accusations stick to him, you sit there and think, that is my righteousness. There is Jesus obeying in such a way so that I could later come back and rightfully claim that I obeyed the way that he obeyed. There's Jesus with no selfless thoughts, no tempers lost, living that out so that I, if I'm in him, might say, that's how I lived before God. That's amazing, friends. That's what this is talking about. That you, in Christ, instead of being condemned, guilty, are viewed as innocent, as if you lived perfectly because of Jesus. Second, what else? In the place, in the place of death, Jesus brings life. He brings life. He gives us the promise of eternal life, not just spiritual life in him, which is true, but life eternal, that you will live forever. That Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, will live forever. And whoever lives, believes in me will never die. Verse 17, for because of the one man's trespass, death reign through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That he overthrows the problem of death. That in him, death is defeated, death is swallowed up, overwhelmed, and those who are in him conquer death alongside him. Verse 18, again, verse, sorry, verse 19, for by the one man's Disobedience, sorry, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Life forever. See, the book of Job talks about death as the king of terrors. And Hebrews talks about that the devil uses the fear of death to keep people in bondage. But in Christ, death is not something we fear. 
Death is just a doorway to better life, greater life, fuller life, unending life, life that has been secured for us by Jesus Christ, who has defeated death. And finally, in the place of sin, Jesus brings grace. This is good for us. Again, you need to know this. What will you think this week, right? What will you think this week when you sin again? And before you sin, the devil promised that forgiveness and repentance would be easy. And afterwards, now you think forgiveness and repentance are impossible. So what do you need? Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded. Abounding grace, overflowing grace, incalculable, unmeasurable, infinite grace is offered in Jesus. That is what? That is the the grace of God's favor towards you. God's forgiveness for your sin. God's goodwill in your life despite sin. And in Titus, it describes Jesus Christ as the grace of God, the grace of God appearing. What do you need when you sin again? Let's talk about that. That sin that you despise, that you disdain, what do you need when you sin again? Maybe what you feel like you need sometimes is a, is a payment plan. You need to find a way to work it off. Why don't I do something to make up for this? Uh, you know what I need? I need? I need greater restrictions. I just need to knuckle down and get through this. I need to start taking my faith serious and be done with this sin. Perhaps those are good things. But what you need most is grace. Grace to forgive your sin. Grace to change you and help mature you and grow you and put sin to death in your life. And what is offered in Christ is grace. He puts us in the realm of grace. That God's kindness and favor to work for your good in your life is consistent and secured. That's what's offered here in the second man. So in Adam, what did we find? We find sin and death and condemnation. And just the opposite in Christ, what do we find? Justification, real forgiveness, righteousness. We find life. We find grace. What's our third point for this morning as we wrap up? It's this. Number three, Jesus is the better man. Jesus is the better man. Here's what I want to do in this last point. Here's what I want you to think about. First, I want you to think about this. This is not a decision that you get to make. You do not decide, well, okay, here I am, Adam on the left, Jesus on the right. Which one am I going to go to? Because the reality is, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you are in Adam. 
You are not in some limbo middle state. Everyone is in one of those two camps, and you are in Adam, enslaved by sin, destined for death physically, which you're living out spiritually, guilty, condemned, awaiting the final carrying out of your sentence. That's who we are in Adam. And yet, if you're not a Christian, you can choose Christ. You can turn to Christ. You could place your faith and trust in him. Turn yourself over to him saying, I am lost. I need to be rescued. I don't need instructions on how to build a ladder. I need someone to come down and rescue me out of the the punishment I've brought for myself. That's exactly what Christ offers. So again, the question is, are you in Adam and in Christ? If you're in Adam, turn to Christ today. Receive forgiveness of sin immediately. Receive all the blessings that come with being in Christ. Justification, life, grace. And be honest. Knowing about Christ doesn't mean that you're in Christ. Just ask this question. Jesus says, John chapter 10. Ready? says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. How strange it would be for someone to think they're in Christ when they follow their steps as if they're in Adam. Do you want to obey? Do you have spiritual life that feels bad over sin or shrugs over why their parents are overreacting to their sin? It's a good thing for you to think about and be honest with yourself on the way home. If you're in Adam, turn to Christ. Receive all the blessings of Christ. But here's what I want you to really see in Jesus is the better man. Between Jesus and Adam, these two are opposites and they are similar but this is not one of those situations where you have opposite but equal they are not equal christ triumphs if you were in adam christ didn't come so that adam and christ would somehow cancel each other out the effects that jesus brings are stronger. Listen, take a look at verse 15. Listen to the language here. For the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, here it is, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded. Okay, again, verse 17. Again, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more. It's greater. It's bigger. It's, it doesn't just cancel out. It overwhelms it and undoes the effects of Adam. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so Christ's work is abundant and better and stronger. These are not competing forces in your life. If you're in Christ, the the devastating effects of being in Adam are not just barely canceled out. They are obliterated and replaced by something stronger. That is, you are no longer guilty. You are innocent, righteous, justified. You are no longer dead. You have life and will have life. And you are no longer under sin, but under grace. That's the good news of the gospel. In Christ, justification triumphs. Life triumphs. 
grace triumphs. Verse 20 again, one last time. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What does that mean? The law comes and we see our sin more clearly. You look at the law and go, I do that. In fact, I kind of want to do that. It makes me sinful. The law comes in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned, as sin dominated, grace also might reign, dominate, lead in your life so that you would be righteous, so that you would have eternal life. That's the triumph of grace. And that is why we rejoice. How are you going to tell yourself you're still forgiven when you sin again? It is not going to come by looking inward. Well, this time I recognize my mistakes. This time I feel really bad. Though that's a really good sign that you mourn over your sin. This time I see how I could do it better. It's only going to come by looking at Christ. And knowing that you've turned to Christ. Right? When Satan tempts me to despair. Tells me of the guilt within. Inward. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. How do you know that you have not sinned so much that God has no more forgiveness? Scripture tells us that grace abounds all the more. Right? Isn't that what we also sing? We sing grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace, not that is equal, but grace that is greater than our sin, than your sin, than my sin. That's how we can know. That's how we stare and we look at our lives if we've trusted in Christ. And we see the sin that still exists. And we hate it. And because of it, we think, how can I be forgiven? You could still have the hope of the glory of God. You could still rejoice in God. Not because of you, but because, again, there is a man with flesh and blood who obeyed in all the ways that you disobeyed, who stands as the perfect representative in heaven. And if you're in him, you have righteousness. You have life, and your life is dominated by, under the reign of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are far better to us in Jesus than we deserve. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we praise you for your righteousness. We thank you that you are our great champion and representative. That you have saved us and delivered us. That you still stand as our only hope for life and forgiveness. 
as the means by which we receive grace. Oh Lord, help us to know your reign in our life. Help us to look at you and trust in your work and worship and adore you. Father, we ask that any here who are in Adam, that you might bring them from death to life and from sin and condemnation to grace and righteousness. Lord, we praise you for your son. We give him all the glory for the salvation that he has worked for those who believe in him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.